Well, it is a, a joy to, to wrap up our really our ministry season here and commissioned for the summer. And we'll be coming back again in, in uh, early August, the first Sunday of August, month of July, as we've heard, is a month that uh, is uh, designated for special seminars held uh, throughout the campus during the both, uh, this, the both services, an opportunity to hear some different teachers on some different topics, so I'm sure that'll, that'll be a, a tremendous blessing to you. But as we wrap up uh, our uh, time in commission before we break for July, I wanted to come back again to another biography. Uh, we looked at the Apostle Peter last Sunday, an Apostle of Contrasts. And uh, this Sunday, I want to look at another very, very significant individual, uh, the uh, gospel writer, the historian, the beloved physician, Luke. As we are going to see, Luke is one of Paul's closest companions, perhaps in many ways one whom we could call an equal in terms of intellect with the great mind of the Apostle Paul. We come to a man who is responsible more than any other writer in the New Testament in contributing to us New Testament-inspired material, and yet one who wants to remain uh, out of the, the spotlight, one who wants to remain in the background, nonetheless one who gives us enough clues about him that we can study his life and take some very, very important lessons from that. And what we do know of Luke, the beloved physician, is that he was a man of devotion. I think if there's one word that summarizes the gospel writer Luke, it is the word devotion. He is, he is a model of devotion. And what we do find on the pages of Holy Scripture are illustrations and examples of his devotion that we as those who look to those who are forefathers in the faith, can look to him and see a wonderful model to emulate in our own lives as it comes to devotion. And as we look at the life of Luke, we're going to notice in particular four ways in which he demonstrates this life of devotion. First of all, we are going to see he is a man who is devoted to humanity. Some very interesting things from Luke's pen and from the statements of Paul that illustrate how this man loved humanity. Secondly, we will see more than that, he was a man devoted to ministry, to the gospel ministry. Third, we will see that he was a man uniquely devoted to the Apostle Paul, a very important co-laborer and assistant to Paul. And then fourthly, we'll see that he was a man devoted to truth. Devoted to humanity, devoted to ministry, devoted to Paul, and devoted to truth. Before we get into those, just some background information about this man about, which, about whom we don't know very much, but there are clues in Scripture which allow us to put together a basic portrait of who he was. It just takes a searching eye to find out some of these details. In fact, you may be surprised at what we can actually learn about Luke. First of all, we can start off with this, what we can acknowledge. Though he was a key member of what we call the Pauline Circle, Paul's very close ministry companions, about his broad life we just know very little. He contributes two very significant books to the New Testament, which as we will see contributes about 
30% of all the New Testament material is given by this man, he really only makes veiled references to himself in his own writings. In a few cases, as we'll see, he, he will refer to himself in the, in the first person pronoun. He will refer to, to himself in a few places with me or I or we or us. But other than that, Luke preferred to remain out of the spotlight. He recognized that the wonderful work of redemption that God was doing was about God and the glories and infinite worth of Christ and not about Luke and his skills. As one writer writes, he hides his personality as completely as possible behind the great events, themes, and lives which he so graphically portrays. But as I said, there are some details about Luke that that come to the surface when we do read the text of Scripture observantly. Some think that Luke was a Hellenistic Jew. There are some who believe that that Luke was was a Jew and not a Gentile. The name Luke, some have considered to be synonymous with Lucius, and a name that Paul mentions in Romans 16, verse 21. If you turn to Romans 16, verse 21, Paul in that chapter of greetings, very unique chapter in that very doctrinally profound letter, chapter filled with References to people. In Romans chapter 16, verse 21, we read this. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you, as do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. So if you take the name Luke to be the name Lucius, another variant of that name, and you take Lucius to be the Luke uh, that we know wrote the gospel and the book of Acts, and you read him as, as involved here in Romans 16, verse 21, then you would be, you'd be forced to conclude that this Lucius, this Luke, was a kinsman of Paul. And that word for kinsman, that word for kinsman relates to ethnicity. And therefore, if you take it that way, as some do, you would take Luke to be of the same ethnicity of Paul, making him out to be a Hellenistic Jew. But Paul seems to indicate otherwise. There's a more clear text that answers this question for us. It's found in Paul's letter to the Colossians. Paul wrote this letter to the Colossians while he was in, uh, in house arrest or under house arrest in the city of Rome, his first Roman imprisonment after he appealed to, ne- to, to, to Nero, and uh, Paul is waiting for his trial, his verdict from Nero in AD 60-61-62, and he writes to the Colossians during that time, and he makes this statement at the close of that letter, and Paul will often fill in his letters, as we saw in Romans, with these greetings, and he says this in verses 10-14 to 14 of Colossians, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings, as also Barnabas' cousin Mark, as also Jesus, who is called Justice. These, he says, Aristarchus, Mark, and Justice, these are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision, referring to the Jews. These three men were Paul's close companions, were even with him there in 
in, in that room in, in Rome. And so Paul indicates that these are with him. They are of his ethnicity. They are of the circumcision. And he goes on to say, and they have proved to be an encouragement to me. But then he goes on in the following verses to mark out another group of people who are with Paul. He says, Epaphras, who is one of your number, the Colossians, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings. And then he mentions Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings as also Demas. Now when you read that text, you may say, well, these are just a bunch of names. But actually, we have here some detail that indicates that Paul is describing two groups of co-workers, those who are especially involved in Paul's gospel ministry with him there and, and being commissioned by him to do different ministry tasks. There's the group of the Jews, Jewish believers in Jesus as the Messiah, Aristarchus, Mark, and Justice, and then there were those who were not of the circumcision, and that was Epaphras, and that was Luke, and that was Demas. So it is best to conclude there that that Luke is not a, not a Jew, but a Gentile. He was part of the uncircumcision, part of be those believing Gentiles who are very, very closely associated with Paul. And that's going to become important, especially when we get into one of our points later on. He was a Gentile. But in this text, Paul also identifies Luke as a physician. It's interesting that, uh, that uh, Luke, or Paul refers to Luke in this way. He was a doctor. We'll come back to this. He was a, a medical doctor, was trained as a, as a physician. A few more details, and these are a little bit beyond the scope. We can't be definitive on these, but there is some early church tradition that suggests that Luke was probably a native of Syrian Antioch. He probably was from that Antioch that we read of in the second half of the book of Acts, where the, the believers in Jesus are first called Christians, and from where the missionary journeys of Paul begin. He is sent out from Antioch. So very, very important church. And it's most likely that Luke was from this city, Syrian Antioch. Why is that? Well, a couple of reasons. First of all, the, the city of Antioch, Syrian Antioch, uh, is always described in a unique way. If you really read the book of Acts closely, there are these references to Syrian Antioch that suggest that Luke really knew the city well. But even more than that, one of the early church historians, Eusebius, describes Luke this way. This was around the 2nd, 3rd century, the 3rd century, uh, he says, Luke, who was by race an Antiochian and a physician by profession, was long a companion of Paul and had careful conversation with the other apostles and in two books left us examples of the medicine for the souls which he had gained from them. There are some other references as well in church history, but they connect Luke to Antioch, which raises this distinct possibility. When we read in Acts chapter 11, you want to turn there for just a moment. Acts chapter 11, in verse 19, Luke records the founding of the church in the city of Antioch. And in Acts 11:19, he says this, he writes this, So, 
than those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen, and that was under the auspices of Paul, who at the time was an opponent of the church. Because of that persecution, some made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. But there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. It's supposition, we can't press this too far, but it's possible that Luke's conversion occurred right there as a man from Antioch, right there in Acts 11, verse 21. Then after that, Luke became associated with Paul. And because these two names go together, because of the history then in the book of Acts, beginning in particular in in chapter 13 and on, it's important to consider just a little bit how these two lives came together, how they interacted. Here's a brief timeline that you can look at in greater detail. Again, these slides will be posted online. You can look at them in, in, with greater time. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. But what we do know for, for certain, based on the testimony of Scripture, that these two lives came together or were together in AD 50. That's when Paul meets Luke in the city of Troas, and they go together to Philippi to preach the gospel. That we know definitively, that that was the earliest that these two lives were working together, that they were in partnership. And then we do know that Luke was then with Paul all the way to the end of his life as one of the remaining men who stood with Paul all the way until his execution. Now let's look at how Luke was devoted, first of all, to humanity. He was a man devoted to humanity, and we see that in that simple description. He was a beloved physician. Colossians 4.13 says, Luke, the beloved physician. That word there for physician, iatros, means one who undertakes the cure of physical ailments. That's who Luke was by training. And as a physician, Luke would have received some of the the best training in the medical sciences. Some have even suggested that maybe Luke had trained in Tarsus, Paul's birth city, because Tarsus was known to have a very significant medical school. But as a physician, to be called a physician, even in those days, you had to have received this training, and that's who Luke was, one who had received extensive training in the medical sciences. And as a result, Luke is what we, who we could call a man of the letters, man of letters. And that means he was very highly educated. He, he knew the arts and the sciences. He, he was very, very literate. And this is what explains what we're going to see later on, his commitment to the truth and historical accuracy. And it also explains the fact that any student of Greek, when they come to the New Testament, finds particular difficulty with Luke's gospel and the book of Acts. Not because the grammar is bad, but because it's formal. 
And that corresponds with Luke's background and his training. But ultimately, we see from this and his training to be a physician that he had a deep concern for human well-being. Just an interesting thing to consider on that. You've all heard of the Hippocratic Oath that it uh, traces back to Hippocrates who lived about four centuries before Christ, a Greek who came up with this this, uh, Hippocratic Oath, this oath that was to define how the Greeks would understand medicine. Now in our day, especially when we consider things like abortion, we see how the medical world has gone far from this in the provision of those kinds of services. But notice how Hippocrates expressed what the job of a physician is to do. And Luke would have been familiar with this oath. Hippocrates wrote this, I will use treatment to help the sick according to my ability and judgment, but never with a view to injury and wrongdoing. Neither will I administer a poison to anybody when asked to do so, nor will I suggest such a course. Into whatsoever houses I enter, I will enter to help the sick, and I will abstain from all intentional wrongdoing and harm, especially from abusing the bodies of man or woman, bond or free. And whatsoever I shall see or hear in the course of my profession, as well as outside my profession in the intercourse with men, if it be what should not be published abroad, I will never divulge holding such things to be holy secrets. You see back then even a commitment to humanity, of course there in what we would call a Greek pagan side, but this Hippocratic Oath then became entrenched And it would have been something that even Luke was familiar with, and we see in that even the basis of general grace. Now, God had enabled someone even like Hippocrates to recognize some basic realities. In Luke's own life, we see that he had a particular interest in healing, particularly the healing ministry of Jesus. He shows an acuteness, an acute awareness of of this healing ministry of Jesus. He was drawn to this. And we won't go through all of these texts, but they're unique texts in that the other gospel writers do not provide these kinds of details as Luke does when he describes some of the miraculous healings that Jesus performed. Luke was fascinated by the Savior's ability to transcend what was normal in the healing processes of the human body and to supernaturally, outside the norm, bring healing to those whom he touched. As well, Luke is the only gospel writer to record the phrase, physician, heal thyself. Seems to be an interesting statement that Luke captured. And we see also Luke's special interest, his care for the gospel's effects on the downtrodden. We know this about Luke, both in his gospel, especially in his gospel, but we also see it in the book of Acts that, that Luke is drawn to how Jesus and his gospel minister to children, to the Gentiles, Samaritans, to women, to widows, children, lepers, and tax collectors. Luke wanted to show in his gospel the truth that Jesus loved the downtrodden. Jesus cared for the downtrodden. And Jesus healed them, and and then, by extension, his gospel comes to them. Luke's desire is to show that that is the compassion of the Savior. 
One writer writes this about Luke's devotion to humanity, his concern for humanity. He says this, quote, The fact that Luke was beloved as a physician shows that he used his skill as a doctor to minister to human need. He probably combined in a fine way a healing ministry which used the skill of medicine and at the same time worked in faith and dependence upon God. So for those of you who are involved in the uh, world of medicine, uh, your example here is, is Luke, and you're walking in a wonderful line, following his devotion to humanity. But there was a devotion that even grew above that devotion to humanity, and that was Luke's devotion to ministry. And Luke is not just an assistant or a physician for Paul, and those in Paul's team, he was a fellow worker in his own right. And number one, it's important to to realize that that Luke was a a full participant in the gospel-spreading ministry of the Apostle Paul. And we find this when, in the book of Acts, Luke refers to himself for the first time outside of his introduction to the book of Acts in chapter 1. We see these pronouns introduced, these personal pronouns in Acts 16, Verse 10, and uh, I won't read the entire text, but we, we can start reading in chapter 16 and go through nine, uh, go from verses 9 to 13, and let me summarize some of that and, and take some uh, snapshots from that particular text. Luke writes this, they came down to Troas, that's speaking of the Apostle Paul and Silas and Timothy. They were on the second missionary journey, and they had been prevented from ministering the gospel in several regions. By divine providence, Paul, Silas, and and Timothy could not go to certain regions to preach the gospel, and they ended up in Troas. But notice it's a they. They came down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when when he had seen the vision... Immediately, we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So we put out to sea from Troas. We ran a straight course to Samothrace, and on the day following to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. And we stayed, and we were staying in the city for some time, for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we were supposing that we would be in a place of prayer and we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. Now you can look at a map and essentially see that the second missionary journey of the Apostle Paul begins in Acts 15 verse 40 in Antioch. They go through what is called Galatia. And and then they try to head into Asia to get to Ephesus. They cannot. Acts 16, verse 6. They try to go up to Bithynia on the north coast, on the, on the coast of the Black Sea. They cannot. And they end up in Troas. And there in Troas, the we section begins. Paul sees a vision saying, come to Macedonia. Go across the Aegean to the province of Macedonia. Paul gets up and immediately Luke is there. He joins Paul. They head over to Philippi, and what's interesting there is that then all of a sudden the we section ends. Again, we won't go through this, but you can look at Acts uh, chapter uh, 
Acts chapter 16 and see that once Paul leaves the uh, region there in Philippi and heads on to Thessalonica, the we section ends. Luke stays in Philippi. So, number two, when Paul and Silas and Timothy leave Philippi, the we section ends. The next we section then does not begin until several years later. Six years later. AD 56, Paul is at the end of his third missionary journey and he travels back again through Philippi. And then what happens? All of a sudden, as Paul is on his way from from Achaia, the province of Achaia, through Macedonia, visits Philippi, on his way to Jerusalem, all of a sudden the we section begins. Acts chapter 20, you can read it later. Acts 20, verses 3 to 6, you see that all of a sudden Luke joins Paul there in Philippi, and then they begin sailing and making their way all the way back to Jerusalem. Why is this? Why the span of six years, the span from the middle of the second missionary journey to the end of the third missionary journey? No we pronouns used? Well, probably because Luke remained there in Philippi to shepherd the church of the Philippians. He was instrumental in that church. Remember, if we go back to Acts 16, Luke says that he, along with Paul and Silas and Timothy, began to speak to the people who had gathered there along the river at that place of prayer. Number three, when Paul writes to Philemon, then later on, this was when Paul was in his second or first Roman imprisonment, He's going to make another reference here to to Luke. And in AD 62, we're going to read that he writes to Philemon saying that Luke is with him there in Rome. And he refers to Luke with this special term. It's important. He calls Luke a fellow worker. And that term for fellow worker is a special term, sunergos. It's, from, it's the Greek word from which we get the word synergy. It means to work together. And Paul calls Luke a fellow worker, a synergos, one who is together with him in the gospel ministry. As Paul remained there under house arrest when he writes to Philemon, AD 62, Luke is his choice fellow worker along with a few other select men who can be sent by Paul to do different ministry tasks he is indeed a fellow worker. He also, we also see this when Paul writes to the Philippian church. In Acts, or in the book of Philippians, uh, we have an interesting reference. You may not have seen this before because it is a debated reference. But in, in the letter to the Philippians, which Paul wrote around the same time as the letter to the Colossians and as he wrote to Philemon, all of them happening in, under house arrest in Rome, AD 61-62, Paul makes a reference in Philippians chapter 4, verse 2 and 3, which is very fascinating. Let me read it. He says, I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Then notice the next sentence. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel. Who is that? singular 
true companion. He, as he writes, he's writing a letter that would be carried back to the Philippian congregation and read. And as he writes, right there, verse 2 and 3, he refers to, he, he changes his address from the plurality of the congregation and even these two women who are in dispute with each other. He then says, indeed, true companion, help them. The word for true companion there is suzagos. And there's debate. Who is the suzagos there? The loyal yoke fellow. It has the idea of being brought together under a, a yoke where you have both necks pulling together as the oxen would a plow. Who is the yoke fellow? Some have suggested that the yoke fellow was Epaphroditus, the man that had been sent by the Philippians to visit Paul, perhaps. Some, such as what you'll read in the MacArthur Study Bible, actually take this as a name, Susagos, a Greek name. But others, and I tend to land on this one, is that this true companion is actually Luke, the one who is associated from the start with the Philippian church. But even if not, we can glean from these other texts that Luke was a partner in ministry. He was devoted to ministry. Behind the scenes, not taking the spotlight, but he was devoted to ministry, particularly the church in Philippi. Luke was also devoted to Paul, number three. He was devoted to humanity, he was devoted to ministry, and he was devoted to Paul. He was a trustworthy friend. Paul's relationship to Luke was unique compared to the other men with whom Paul associates. For example, take Timothy, another man who spent a lot of time with Paul. But that relationship is always described by Paul as a father-son relationship. Certainly Paul had great respect for Timothy, but it's always a father-son. When Paul writes to Timothy, he calls him his son in the faith. But with Luke, it's a relationship of colleagues. Both Paul and Luke were highly educated, representing both of them representing the best that their cultures had to offer. So for Paul, he was trained in the highest standards of Judaism. Paul was trained at the feet of Gamaliel. He received the very best training that a Pharisee could receive in that culture. And in many ways, Luke is the same. Luke was trained in the highest standard of the sciences, the highest standards that Greek education could afford. These two men were, were very alike in their backgrounds and in their training. And so there's a sense in which you can see as Paul relates to Luke, he, he treats him, he relates to him as equals. They're equals. Not according to apostleship per, per se. Luke is never referred to as an apostle, though he was a prophet. But they were equals. Equals in their education and human achievements. One writer says this, Take all of Paul's friends and consider all their points and characteristics, mental, spiritual, intellectual, and personal. And Luke will be found the only man in the list and the only man of the entire New Testament whom we can think of as anything like Paul's peer, the only one whom we can conjecture 
to have been a complete companion for the varied and inexhaustible riches of Paul's mind. Their backgrounds and their common concern for the Gentiles links them together in a very profound way. And what's interesting is that whenever Paul was in great need, Luke is there. How? Luke is with Paul, for example, during his first imprisonment in Caesarea. Remember after the third missionary journey, Paul gets to Jerusalem. He's almost killed there by the Jews, there in the temple court. The Romans step in. They're about to beat him. And and then Paul says, hey, I'm a Roman citizen. So all of a sudden the whole process changes. And Paul ends up for two years in a prison there in the city of Caesarea on the Mediterranean. And who is there? Luke is there with him. References to that that you can look at on your own. He is with Paul during that time. We know then at the end of the book of Acts when Paul is transferred to the care of Nero, Caesar's court, when there's that amazing voyage of the ship from Caesarea to Rome, Luke once again uses the personal pronouns we. Luke was there and endured all of those events and circumstances that Paul did as they sailed together. We've already read that Luke was with Paul during his first Roman imprisonment. He was there and Luke and Paul sends greetings from Luke to the various churches. And we do know most importantly that Luke was with Paul during his second Roman imprisonment. There are texts which testify to Luke's presence there when Paul was in Rome once again, but this time under very different circumstances. The first time when Paul was in Rome during his first Roman imprisonment, Paul had every expectation that he would be released. He knew the law was on his side, the charges were unfounded, and he would be released. He writes with that optimism. He writes as one who is under house arrest, which meant that Paul could accept visitors, they could come and they could go. There would be a centurion guarding him, but Paul had a a remarkable degree of of, uh, freedom, even being chained there within a rented house. But at his last imprisonment, things are much different. Now, when Paul writes 2 Timothy, under that second imprisonment, Paul has no optimism of release. In fact, he refers to himself as having already fought the fight. It's already over. Now the the whole government had changed toward the church, and Paul knew his life was going to end. Who is there? 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15 says this, and it's interesting to note in 2 Timothy, Paul does have some disappointments. He begins in verse or chapter 115, you are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. All who are in Asia. Now that doesn't necessarily state that those men had all become apostate. But understand this, when Paul is under, uh, in, imprisoned in Rome that second time, the charges were serious, and anyone associating with Paul was then a potential target of the government. It was not an easy thing to associate with Paul when he was under this second Roman imprisonment. It endangered your very life. And men of weaker character 
were falling like flies. They did not want to put their life in jeopardy by associating with this one designated as a traitor to the empire. In fact, there's a place in Rome today you can go, it's called the Mamertine Prison, very different than house arrest, a very dingy cell, and it's likely that Paul was held there during this time. But notice what Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, verse 11. Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me in service. This highly educated, skilled man, Luke, is with Paul. Putting his life on the line, as any true devoted friend does, that's Luke. And based on every account, it's highly likely that Luke was even there to witness Paul's beheading. One writer summarizes this devotion, this model of friendship with these words. What a simple eulogy, speaking of 2 Timothy 4 and that Luke is with him. What a simple eulogy of this quiet but fearless friend. The self-advertising and loud-voiced are hiding in craven terror, but Luke, the beloved physician, is still at his post, ministering to a suffering heart as once he ministered to suffering bodies. Let peril come, let death come, let Nero sharpen his axe, let others flee. Here is another of that noble, self-sacrificing profession, which is ready to hazard his life at the call of duty and honor. In that hour to which heavenly hosts bore witness, and back to which all after ages have gazed in wonder and awe. The names of two men shine forth out of the murky darkness with a light and a glory which neither time nor circumstance can ever dim. Paul awaiting his physical death and spiritual crown, and Luke, physician and soldier of the cross, by his side, holding his hand and steadying his courage for that last journey the journey of his spirit to its heavenly rest. In that scene and hour, Luke won new honors for the medical profession, undying glory for Christian courage, and unfading laurels for human friendship. Proverbs 20 verse 6 says, Many a man proclaim his own loyalties, but who can find a trustworthy friend? Paul did in Luke There is a fourth devotion that we see in Luke in that he is devoted to truth. He was an accurate historian. Luke made his greatest contribution through his research and his writing of the Gospel of Luke in the book of Acts. One writer says, We characterize Luke as the biographer of Paul. This title is both inadequate and inexact as descriptive of Luke himself. He was something more. For he was the biographer of a greater one than Paul, even Paul's master, Jesus Christ. We see Luke's gospel researched and written by Luke during that time when Paul was there in prison in Caesarea on the Mediterranean after Paul had been arrested in Jerusalem and was waiting two years before he appeals to Caesar. He's there for two years. Luke is with him. And as Luke is with him there in the land of Israel... Luke, of course, is not in prison, but he's ministering to to Paul's needs there in prison. And Luke used that opportunity then to research 
the life of Jesus Christ, to meet with all those people who had so uh, benefited and, 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 and viewed the life of Christ firsthand. Luke uses the opportunity to interview them, and we have a record of that in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 and 4. Luke writes to a Theophilus so that Theophilus would know the exact truth of the things about Jesus which he had already been taught. So Luke puts together for Theophilus this masterpiece called the Gospel of Luke. Theophilus was a man of high social standing who had become a follower of Jesus and perhaps even contributed to Luke's own sustenance. And so Luke returns the favor and writes for him a a gospel so that Theophilus would know the exact truth. From a literary perspective, Luke's gospel has been acclaimed as the most beautiful book ever written. Luke's gospel contains information not present in the other gospels, such as the record of the prophecy and birth of John the Baptist, many details surrounding Jesus' birth, including Mary's Magnificat. We have only in Luke's gospel the parables of the Good Samaritan, the prodigal son of Lazarus and the rich man, the healing of the ten lepers, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, the only gospel to report the ascension of Jesus Christ. Many, many crucial details all wound into this beautiful gospel. We then have the book of Acts, researched and written then after Paul had been transferred from Caesarea. They go by boat, that wonderful, amazing voyage to Rome. They end up in Rome and once again, Paul is there for several years. And during that time, Luke puts together the book of Acts. He says, beginning in that book, he says, the first count I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. And then in this book of Acts, he records for us the authoritative account, the only authoritative account of the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the early church. What's amazing is that, especially in the book of Acts, Luke's commitment to historical accuracy has weathered all the attacks of countless critics. Critics have particularly focused on the book of Acts and the spread of the gospel. And they want to poke holes in it because they hate the gospel and they hate its spread. And so over time, Luke has been the the focus of a lot of critical attacks. And if he can somehow be shown to be false, a non-historian, an exaggerator of details, a fabricator of circumstances, then the whole spread of the gospel can be undermined and dismissed. One such critic was a man by the name of Sir William Ramsey, a Brit who was a skeptic, educated in Germany in the famous critical Tubigen school, And William Ramsey said this, the first and essential quality of the historian is truth. He went on to say, I began with a mind unfavorable to it. That is, to the historical value of Acts. For the ingenuity and apparent completeness of the Tubigen school, the Tubigen theory, had at one time quite convinced me. It was gradually borne upon me that in Various details, the narrative of Acts showed marvelous truth. He went on to write this, How far can we believe his narrative? 
The present writer takes the view that Luke's history is unsurpassed in respect to its trustworthiness. Further studies showed that the book of Acts could bear the most minute scrutiny as an authority for the facts of the Aegean world, and that it was written with such judgment, skill, art, and perception of truth as to be a model of historical statement. The more I have studied the narrative of Acts, and the more I have learned year after year about Greco-Roman society and the thoughts and fashions in those provinces, the more I admire and the better I understand I set out to look for truth and found it here in Acts. You may press the word of Luke in a degree far beyond any other historians and they stand the keenest scrutiny and the hardest treatment. And then finally he says this, Luke is a historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy, he is possessed of the true historic sense. In short, this author should be placed along with the very greatest of historians. And of course, we believe that because we recognize Luke to be under the superintendence of the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth. And Luke was devoted to that same truth. It's interesting to notice something that many Christians in the reading of the Bible don't recognize because we tend to think of the Bible in terms of its its number of books rather than in terms of quantity. But it's interesting to note that Luke, out of all the New Testament writers, contributed the most. If we look at the number of Greek words, Luke contributed 37,932 words to the New Testament. In all of Paul's writings, 13 letters, Paul contributes 32,408 And even the gospel writer and the letter writer and the writer of the book of Revelation, John, the apostle John, contributes 28,000. Massive differences there. And when we look at it in a a different way, you can see that that Luke contributes 27.5% of our New Testaments. Almost a third. Almost a third of our New Testament is contributed to by this man named Luke, who is not a Jew. In fact, he is the only gentle, Gentile writer in all of Scripture. And it turns out that he contributed the greatest amount per writer in our New Testament. Together, he and Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, contribute half of the New Testament. And as one writer said, it would be difficult to overestimate the importance of what Luke and Paul have done for the Christian world through their writings. Together they have written more than half of the New Testament. The work of these two men in the committing of the Christian tradition to writing has put the Christian world forever in their debt. Luke was committed to truth, devoted to truth. Devoted to humanity, devoted to ministry, devoted to Paul, and devoted to truth. And it is in this last aspect that we see it comes full circle back to his commitment to humanity. Luke was committed and devoted to bringing truth to humanity. Under the inspiration of the Spirit, he gives us that wonderful life of Jesus Christ and of Jesus Christ's work in the early church. One final quotation here from one writer says this, with Peter, John, and Paul, he, that is Luke, must rank forever as one of the four colossal figures of the New Testament. 
though inferior to the other three in the founding and spreading of Christianity, yet in revealing its essential spirit and nature and in recording its mighty advance and world significance and destiny, he, that is Luke, surpasses the first two, that is Peter and John, and rivals the third, that is Paul. That is this man, Luke, a man who was so content to stand behind, out of the spotlight, and to never make the story about himself. That's what devotion looks like. Let's pray that the Lord would use that devotion in our own lives, even in these four areas, in our devotion to the lost, to humanity, in our devotion to ministry, in our devotion to others like Paul who are ministering the gospel, and then, of course, in our devotion to the truth. We would love the truth, speak the truth, and live the truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for the amazing literature of your word, which expresses even just in a small way your manifold wisdom and beauty. That we have this Gentile physician named Luke writing a third of this New Testament, chronicling the life of your son with such beautiful skill and then recording for our benefit and edification the spread of the gospel from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. As we look at his life, we understand that it is not about Luke. We know that your servant Luke would not have wanted us to make it about him, but it was all about and is all about the one to whom Luke was ultimately devoted, and that is your son Jesus Christ. And we pray that we would learn from Luke's life, even from one who who shrinks back from the spotlight, we would Learn from him what it means to be devoted. And we ask this for the spread of your glory in the name of Jesus Christ to all the nations. Amen.